Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Oh, wonder working hours in the precious... Incredible as they seem are not the results of mass hysteria. You may wish to adjust the dial. You're currently tuned into... The Wrong Station. Fergus, Ontario was a small town, but that didn't matter. It could have been ten times the size, and Bruce McCowan Claggan still would have been its richest man by far. You see, he owned the pulp and timber mill. He liked to brag that each year a Spanish armada's worth of trees would sail through his mill, and each decade on average, two children would die of mercury poisoning in the village downstream their pink hands swollen and peeling as they sweated in the cold of their clapboard houses, and their mothers bravely tried to pretend it was going to be okay. Everybody knew this was because of the mill, but the courts wouldn't let you lay a finger on Bruce McCown Claggan because they said you couldn't prove it. And anyway, it was an Ojibwe village downstream, and the judges, if you cornered them in conversation by the beer engine at the local pub, or in the back corner of the Orangeman's Hall during bingo night, well, they'd tell you in their judgely way that if it was Mercury that killed those kids, and they weren't saying that it was, because there was no proof despite all the symptoms, but if it was Mercury, then there was no evidence it came from the mill. And even if it did, then... Well, in the end, if it hadn't been the mercury, it probably would have been something else. And then they would shake their head at the tragic plight of that allegedly disappearing race. And besides, some other reasonable soul would chime in. The Ojibwe village was made of clapboard from the mill anyway, so surely the upside and the downsides of the mill bounced one another out. Bruce McCow and Claggan, though, never had to answer these kinds of questions, because nobody ever put them to him. He just went through town with his wool tam pushed down over his white hair, and his kilt swinging over his red knees, and his iron-headed swagger stick in one hand, and his pipe stuck between his big molars at one side of his grinning mouth, and the pink skin glowing through his white bristled beard. And every person that he met he smiled and stopped to talk with, and joked with the men, and shook every man's hand with his still firm handshake, and bowed to every woman with his hat clenched across his heart, and swore she was lovelier than the queens of ancient Sheba altogether. So, in spite of everything, 
he was well-liked and respected around Vergus. But all this was to turn out to be prologue, as indeed was everything that happened in his life before he surprised the town by taking a second wife at the ripe age of eighty-five. Melinda Barnett Claggan had been carried off by flu at the age of sixty-two a decade before, and though he'd mourned the loss, he never seemed to pine for female company, until the news came that his son, Bruce McCowan Barnett Claggan, had died of sepsis in a military hospital in Flanders. After that, his chivalry with the ladies took on new warmth, and when he met unmarried sisters and daughters of men half his age, he would bow creakily and plant a moist kiss on the back of their hand, or else claiming Scotland's Europeanness, seize them by the shoulders and close in on their cheek with chapped lips and the burning scent of scotch. His reputation soon soured, and people began thinking of him as an old goat. The young women and soon the not-so-young women made themselves scarce. And so, the summer after his son and heir died feverish among rows of white beds, a dispirited McCown Claggan upped stakes for the city and from thence abroad, and by autumn of that year returned with a bride on his shoulder, Jane Pollard, barely twenty years of age. She was a thin young woman with haunted eyes and a darkness to her features made pale by too much poverty and time indoors. But she was also attractive, and her sheer frailty flared the nostrils of a certain type of man. Jane Pollard. Though no information was offered as to who her people were, it was plain from the stamp of her features that she very well could have been born in that clapboard village fifteen miles downstream. Eighty-five years old, the men of Fergus muttered into their cups. With a girl like that, I'm surprised anything still works. But nobody ever put that accusation to Bruce McCown Claggan either. And all winter, as he promenaded up and down the red brick street of Fergus with that new bride on his arm, his smiles were jollier than ever, and his handshake all the more firm, and gone were his sloppy grapples with the ladies. His chivalry, as such, had been restored. And by winter's end, when the heavy coats came off, you could clearly see Jane Pollard's pregnancy. The rumors came thick and fast. For all his body winks, nobody believed McCowan Claggan, now eighty-six and spindly round the knees, had been up to the deed. More likely, went the rumor, was Patrick Sweeney, spelt the Irish way with a B and an H. He worked as a gardener at the Claggan estate, a scowling young rugged with messy hair as red as Judas's sin. I know which of the two I'd choose, giggled the town's women in hushed conversation at church luncheons and wedding showers. But Bruce McCown Claggan seemed to have no doubts. Whenever he encountered someone on the street, he'd grin and place a possessive hand on his young wife's belly. My son, he'd say. Can you believe it? I know what he's like already. We Claggan boys are always born the same. Strong and big, with hair and teeth already. And always boys. Jane Pollard, at this, would remain expressionless but for the mildest wince. That mild wince was all that anyone in town ever knew of her thoughts. Yes, that's right, old Claggan would say, squeezing the belly like a grapefruit. He's the one I leave everything to. My name, the mill, my highland spirit. And 
It was left unsaid, the legacy of one dead child every forty months. Not long after, around the end of the first trimester, while standing in church, Jane Pollard Claggan grew light-headed in the gray light of the windows and fainted. When a group of the town's men carried her into the rectory to recover, they discovered with horror when they straightened that their hands came away black with thick blood now seeping through the pale fabric of her dress. Its origin was her womb. Something had gone very badly amiss. An obstetrician was called for the nearest large town, Dr. Selby. He was tidy and polite, with a graying light brown hair receding from grayish sideburns and round gray glasses. He worked efficiently and quick. Normally a diffident and awkward man, he seemed much more at ease when a woman was bleeding out upon his table. Yet his cold ministrations saved Jane Pollard's life that day, and when the rector's wife and a few other parish women were soothing Jane and wrapping her in blankets and pouring sips of brandy in her tea in an upper bedroom, Dr. Selby accepted an invitation into the parlor. There he sat with Bruce McCown Claggan and the rector in an armchair by the fire. A drink for you, doctor? Oh, yes. Thank you, reverend. Whatever you're pouring with a little ice. Give him some of the scotch, reverend. It'll do him good after all that. Very fine stuff, Dr. Selby. Island malt. Import it myself. Most obliged to you, I'm sure. Oh, forgive me, Reverend. I've got a bit of blood on your glass. Nothing to it at all, Dr. Selby. Nothing to it. I spill the blood of our Lord each Sunday. I shouldn't think a drop of Mrs. Claggins will do me any harm. The doctor took a sip of strong drink, and after he had showed it proper appreciation... McCown Claggan leaned in and asked, Now then, doctor, tell me about my son. Mm, yes, well, the child is all right for now, and Mrs. McCown Claggan too, for that matter. But after what happened this morning, I shouldn't have to tell you. The situation isn't very good. What exactly is the matter? asked the rector. Mm. Well, it isn't exactly polite conversation, but as we are all men here, I suppose it couldn't do much harm. You gentlemen will be familiar, I assume, with an organ known as the placenta. He adjusted his round glasses. The firelight glinted from their frame. Not, uh, as it were, intimately. The rector admitted. Well, rector, I'll try not to disturb you overmuch with gynecology, though... I'll confess I find it a most peculiar and fascinating organ. Oh? McCowan Claggan was already resting one cheek on his fist. Enlighten us. Well, more or less, Mr. McCowan Claggan, when a baby is, shall we say, conceived and begins to grow within the womb, an additional organ is engendered alongside it, the placenta uterina. And this organ, medicine has come to believe, is a sort of middleman between the mother and child. So, is it of the mother or the baby? Well, that is exactly what I find so fascinating, Rector. Properly, the placenta doesn't seem to belong to either mother or child. Being external to the fetus, we cannot rightly say it is part of the fetus. But being cut off from the mother's body by the fetal envelope, we cannot say correctly it belongs to her either. And so the placenta is a sort of... The thing between, with its own powers and agendas. Some definitions might even consider it an organism in itself. Intriguing, said the rector. 
Clegan only grunted. Dr. Selby continued. Intriguing, yes. And troubling. For while one would think the mother and fetus might be on the same side of things, that's not exactly the case. To the mother's body, the fetus is a kind of interloper. Some, though I do not, even go so far as to say a parasitic one, for it sustains off the very resources the mother's body needs to survive. And as for the fetus's perspective, the mother is, uh, well, a kind of threat, really. Almost a predator trying to reabsorb and consume the developing infant. This narrative was met with revulsed silence. I must say, Dr. Selby, managed the rector at last, I am theologically disturbed by your account of life's miracle. Well, Reverend, Selby had run into this objection before. The field of obstetrics is still, pardon the pun, in its infancy. I am certain that as we learn more, we'll find our discoveries consonant with the word of God. Of course, the Reverend was mollified. Bible in one hand, reason in the other, and all that. Rector, if you don't mind, McCown Clagan growled. I've yet to hear about my son. Oh, uh, of course, of course. Bowing out of the conversation, the rector took an opportunity to gracefully recharge everyone's glass. So, the mother and fetus, locked in struggle. Selby was feeling his alcohol by now. The problem, how, when the mother is bigger and stronger, shall the fetus ever live to term? Island spirit, McCowan Clagan said. Ha, well, to be sure... But outside the lands of the Haggis Fed, the fetus needs an advantage, an ally. This is where the placenta comes in. It is a mastiff, a monster bred for one purpose, to keep the fetus alive by absolutely any means. Oh, no. Well, precisely, Rector. And so, to simplify slightly, the placenta... Selby clawed his fingers, digs through the walls of the mother's womb, and takes everything it can for the baby, even if it kills the mother, e even if it kills them both. And so throughout pregnancy, one of the mother's main tasks is to simply survive, to hold the placenta at bay while it lunges, snarling at her bloodstream. Good heavens, said the rector. <laughs> said McCown Clagan. Now, what sometimes happens, remorse on Selby's face, is... The mother becomes unable to withstand this inner nemesis. The placenta sinks its roots too deep, hits something vital, and mother dies. Right now, Mr. McCown Clagan, your wife is losing that fight. Hmm. The old man leaned forward over his mottled knees, thinking. Up until now, he'd felt out of his depth in this conversation. No man of science or theology. But now they had entered territory where he felt at home. Resources, competition, ruthlessness, business. <sighs> so, Doctor, if we're in a boxing match, how do we keep our fighter in the ring? 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Jane Pollard Claggan was put on a strict diet of red meat and beef broth with milk and cabbage. Four meals a day, all forcibly administered by a red-armed Scottish nurse named Slade, whom Claggan had acquired through some Freemasonry of Celts. As part of this daily regimen, Jane was obliged to walk 45 minutes round the grounds twice daily, though often the second half and then two-thirds of these walks saw her all but carried by an increasingly anxious Patrick Sweeney. From the black glass of her upper window, Nanny Slade would watch them, and her hard Hebridean eyes did not fail to notice Sweeney's tenderness. But she said nothing to her employer, and instead appeased a Calvinist sense of justice by viciously administering Jane's doses of the broth. Yet the young woman continued to sicken. After two weeks, a new council of war was called, this time at the Claggan Manse, with Nanny Slade standing in for the lily-hearted rector. I'm afraid, Mr. McCown Claggan, that your wife's condition continues to deteriorate. It was raining outside, and Dr. Selby, slightly damp, was polishing his small, round glasses. She needs more broth, said Nanny Slade. I'm afraid she needs more blood. One has to only look to see the placentas drinking her dry. It's right, blood. Indeed, only the day before, Slade had appeared at Jane's door with a pint of hot beef blood, still smoking from the vein. Jane, for once, had resisted, and the outcome of the assault had been a debacle, for no sooner was the pint forced down than it had come boiling back up in a geyser, clotted pink with the morning's milk and cabbage, stinging Slade's eyes and ruining the white bedsheets and spattering the whitewashed bricks of the sick room. Since then, Annie Slade had been fighting a war on two fronts, one against her patient, the other against Mrs. Carstairs, the house cleaner. No, said Selby. I applaud your initiative, Nanny Slade, but I was thinking of something more vigorous. I am considering a transfusion. This was a dangerous proposal. Even without the risk of infection, serological blood testing was just past its childhood, and kits to test blood type in the field were a recent invention. Blood of the wrong type would curdle when injected in a person's veins, causing terrible death. Nanny Slade had seen it happen, had been the one to slide the needle home. Even her hard eyes widened at the suggestion. Of course, uh, Selby backpedaled. I would be reluctant to... But McCowan Claggan cut him off. Do it, Doctor. It's the only way to save my son. And wife? Of course. Claggan looked irritated by the suggestion. And her, of course. 
So that was the afternoon when Dr. Selby returned with his serological kit and twin-needle syringe. The household staff, all dressed in black, lined up, and Selby drew their blood one at a time, mixing a single drop for each possible donor with a drop of serum on a card. Only one of the drops refused to curdle, and by tea time, Patrick Sweeney was sitting by Jane Pollard Claggan's bed, joined to her arm in the gray light that drooled the rain-streaked windows. The whole household looked on in silence, Jane pale and lifeless on the bed, Patrick in his shirt sleeves, the veins and muscles standing out from his whole forearm. And in one corner of the room, Bruce McCowan Claggan paced restlessly, either anxious for the welfare of his wife and child, or over the optics of this perverse coupling, uncanny cuckoldry before him. Thank you for doing this, Sweeney. Good man, he said every few minutes. But Sweeney barely ever looked up from the pallid Jane, from her face shining with cold sweat. It's nothing at all, he muttered. Just the only thing to do. That night, Sweeney and Selby waited beside Jane's bed by candlelight. She looked as though she would not survive. But the next morning, Jane sat up in bed, drank her whole measure of broth without complaint, and walked an entire forty-five-minute circuit of the property without leaning on Patrick once. Well, Selby confessed as he, Slade, and Claggan watched from the upper window. I had my doubts, but the procedure seems to have worked. I must write down my notes for the journal. Hmm. Aye. Claggan was buried in thought. But then, as the doctor packed his things and turned for the door, the old man suddenly stopped him. Dr. Selby, before you leave, do you think... Could Mrs. McCown Claggan survive another transfusion? Well, if she takes another turn for the worse, I see no reason why not. <sighs> You mistake me, Doctor. I was just uh, thinking. If a transfusion can save a child and mother when they're in danger, what might one achieve if they were already well? The question brought Selby up short. You're considering a positive application? I don't know what that means, but what I'm saying is... What if the child could be made even stronger? If this procedure is the difference between sickness and health, might it also be the difference between health and... something more? Hmm. Selby drummed fingers on his black leather bag. The notes were inside, valuable and fragile as crystal. That could be an interesting opportunity for research, Mr. McCown-Claggan... Some have certainly considered it. Bogdanov, of course, though blood types had yet to be discovered. But the obstetric application is new. Hmm. Yes, something of the kind could well be done. There'd be risks, of course. But in Mrs. Claggan's case, there would also be risks in not performing the experiment. She is still so frail. Hmm. Yes, after all, I think I will do it. If you are willing to consent on behalf of yourself and your wife... But then there is the problem of blood. Where shall we find donors? You leave that to me, Dr. Selby. Claggan's teeth showed yellow against his white beard. I'm a businessman. I understand human resources. The next day, Jane was wilting again already, and Selby administered another transfusion from Patrick Sweeney. Then, the day after that, 
Three men from the pulp and timber mill were waiting in their shirt sleeves on a bench in the hall outside Jane's room. Good morning, doctor. The leader of the three introduced himself as Morton. He was large as a draft horse and had black hair on the backs of his hands, which deferentially crushed a hat in front of him. We're here to help Mr. Clagan's wife. Well, Mr. Morton, do come in. I'm sure a big lad like you has blood enough to spare. Pleased by the caliber of donors, Selby pumped the red out of them and into Jane at a steady pace over the next ninety minutes. After the second transfusion, Jane told him she really didn't think she could take any more, that she was about to burst. But he let her know in a gentle, cajoling way that he knew better, and she was his patient. Doctor, I... Now, now, dear, I really must insist. So the third transfusion went ahead. By the end of it, she was flushed and sweating, her skin taut as a pig's bladder. No broth this evening, Nanny Slade, Selby told her on his way out. Only a little bit, a little, mind you, of dry beef. He was gone before he could notice her grinding teeth. That night, Jane was up to urinate every twenty minutes, and by the next morning her redness and bloating had subsided. She looked very tired from the restless night, but was nonetheless energetic for her walk, and to those around the house it seemed her underlying pallor had been painted over with a vitality. Three more men arrived from the mill that afternoon, but Selby asked two of them to return tomorrow instead. In idle chatter with the third, he surmised the men were not being paid to give their blood, but had been persuaded by a personal loyalty to Clagan. Each day, however, Selby gave Jane a new transfusion, and by the end of the week the Clagan loyalists had run out, and were replaced by sullen men who'd come reluctantly after being offered loo days. By the second week it was bitter workers who plainly disliked both Clagan and his wife, but were being paid. Regardless of the workers' feelings, however... The experiment's success was unqualified. Though she'd barely eaten in fourteen days, Jane had grown vibrant and practically talkative, gaining nearly fifteen pounds. Her belly was noticeably large, but with her new firmness of arm and thigh, she had no difficulty moving on her twice-daily, ninety-minute walks. Nanny Slade had resigned in disgrace— both because she was no longer needed to bully Jane into eating, and because Jane was now strong enough to overpower the older woman if she tried. With Slade no longer watching at the upper window, there was nobody to see Jane and Sweeney as they secreted themselves in the damp privacy of the estate's trees, and she got down on her knees and sucked at the little wounds he cut into his forearms for her. Thorns, he'd later explain, when the cook or maid or Mrs. Carstairs saw his injuries and asked about them. Though Clagan was clearly slowing down, he had spring in his step when he walked through town those days, and even Selby, about whom the adjective bloodless had often been applied, felt a burgeoning energy in his life, as if he himself, not Jane, had been the one receiving transfusions from young, strong men. And so Jane Pollard Clagan's belly grew. And grew. The donors were mostly repeat customers by now, as the bitter mill workers refused to return, even for twice the pay. Perhaps it was pride, or perhaps, as Clagan accused, a latent Bolshevism. But the loyalists, Morton and those like him, kept coming back, first weekly, then every other day, even when repeated bleedings began to turn them pale. Morton especially, like Sweeney, seemed to have developed a sort of addiction to the act of giving blood— 
and while Sweeney's devotion to Jane was understandable, Morton seemed to stem from a mysterious drive to be of service to his employer. Selby wondered at this, for he'd grown to find Claggan pompous, unpleasant, and unimpressive. Why, then, should strong men genuflect before him? Three times in one week Morton came to give blood, sitting hunched and pale at the bench outside Mrs. Claggan's room. His heavy frame was shrinking, his ruddy skin grown pale, scabs ran down his arm like flea bites. Absolutely not, Selby said on the third appearance. Your blood's of no use until you spend a month resting and eating beef. A month? The sentence might have been prison for the way he hung his head and slouched from the house. Yet still, Jane's belly grew. In the first trimester, she'd been one of those women whose pregnancy scarcely showed. After two weeks of transfusions, her belly was large, hard, insistent. The heartbeat of the child was strong. After four, her belly strained normality, rising nearly spherical from crest of hips to bust. Even the revitalized Jane struggled with its mass. The heart within was like a pounding drum. After six weeks of transfusions, Jane's belly resembled nothing so much as a man crouching underneath her bedsheets. Jane was now forced to sleep cross-legged on the groaning bed, with her back against the wall. Yet she laughed easily these days, humming to herself and flirting with the tired men who fed their blood into her, sending imperious, cool glances at the tired wives when it was their turn to have their forearms tapped. Her lips were flush with good health and the tint of Patrick Sweeney's illicit blood. One afternoon, when Selby put his cold stethoscope to her roundness, he felt the blood drain from his face and quickly packed his medical bag. A few moments later, he arrived in Claggan's parlor. Good God, Selby. Something wrong? Is it Mrs. Claggan? Hmm? Ah, uh, no. Quite the opposite, in fact. Our, um... Little experiment is working out rather better than I imagined. Then why the sour face, Doctor? Well, I simply wonder if we oughtn't call it off at this point. We've met our objectives, haven't we? Best to take the victory and consolidate. Yes? McCowan Claggan only threw back his head and laughed. <laughs> you intellectual types fascinate me, Dr. Selby. Never a good idea you're not afraid to implement. But let me tell you, in my world we learn to press our advantage. No, I don't believe that now's the time to stop at all. We're just beginning to see great results. Great was no understatement. Despite the notebook full of research that would make Selby rich, the sheer size of Mrs. Pollard Claggan had begun to terrify him. But what about the blood, Mr. Claggan? You said yourself you were running low on donors, only because you... He leveled a bony finger. Keep turning Morton and them away. But don't you worry yourself. I found a new source. And the next day, that new source was lined up on the bench outside Jane's room, and down the corridor with their backs against the cold painted bricks. Tired and hollow-eyed... Women and children from that tar-paper town downriver from the mill. Even for Selby, this felt like a bridge too far, especially when one of the women told him how little they were being paid for blood. Yet, his research and his article were on the line. 
McCow and Clagan need simply snap arthritic fingers to find another obstetrician to finish Selby's work and claim credit. And so the pallid doctor forced a smile and beckoned the thirteen-year-old child at the front of the line. A white chair and pregnant woman waited, and with them both, a double-headed syringe. And on the thirty-first day of Jane's ninth month, while a dreamy and feeble Patrick Sweeney milked his forearm into a teacup for her to drink, Mrs. McCowan Claggan's water broke. It happened quite abruptly, like a glacial flood. Perhaps ten gallons of yellowy amnion were suddenly pouring over the edge of Jane's bed like a waterfall, to lap thickly at the edges of Sweeney's boot. In light-headed surprise, he knocked over the teacup and lost his balance on the three-legged stool, landing with a splash and reddening that floor with his offered veins as Jane began to groan at the contractions. Selby, of course, was on call at all hours by this point, and quickly arrived in the room with Nanny Slade, recalled from the city for the final act. Leaving Sweeney where he lay, they rushed to Jane's side as the groans turned to growls, and then rising and falling cries of pain. How is she, doctor? How is she? McCowan Claggan called from the door as he tottered in all but unheard over the shouting of the nurse and Jane's rising moan and the confused mumble of Patrick Sweeney as he raised one bloody arm to his dazed eyes and watched the mingled blood and amnion run. Selby ignored them all. The labor was coming fast, and he had his sleeves pinned up, and he could feel the bright sweat on his forehead as he positioned himself at the end of the bed, and the red blood, good God, so much of it, poured out of her like a sluice gate. Push, Mrs. Claggan, push! The moment was already here, and Jane propped herself up on her elbows, howling with a pain that gave way to furious outrage as the great head began to crown. My God. The world seemed to slow. That head which emerged from her was barely human. Or not at all. It elongated back from lipless, crushing yellow teeth, was red and hairless, with the beady eyes a black afterthought among the blood-slick folds of flesh. My God! Selby's cry turned wordless as the creature came out of her. He tried to catch it in his arms, but the weight of that huge body was far too great as it slipped free like a newborn elephant. It crashed into him and carried him off his feet into the brick wall behind him, so that the back of his balding head left a red star on the white-painted bricks, and he did not move again. But nobody in that moment noticed Selby's plight for the newborn was pushing itself slowly to its feet, and the muscular limbs that raised its great weight were like those of an ape or a bear. But the beast was all furless, and its body skinless, covered in thick crocodilian plates of glistening scab, and it raised its horrid snout to the ceiling, and its first infant's cry was the bellow of a thing enraged. All was pandemonium as a crowd of staff at the door screamed and fled, and the newborn seized Nanny Slade with a great three-fingered hand and dashed her against the wall and clipped her throat with its teeth like clamp pliers snipping for a width of vinyl hose. And the blood spurted, and the newborn drank, and Patrick Sweeney gazed wordless at this huge beast which had his reddish hair and small, slick tufts upon its head, 
and Jane fell back exhausted with elation in her eye, and Bruce McCowan Claggan, frail but face alight with ecstasy and holy pride, stepped forward with his hands raised and laughter gurgling from his throat like blood. My son! He shouted at the thing that towered before him. My great big son! The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Visit today at patreon.com slash therongstation. This week's episode, Placenta, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Botello. Thank you to Florida Infante, Vicky Osterweil, Jan, Megan O'Malley, August Corso, Fijin to Sheriff, M. Bombardier McDonough, Eric Slaughterman, Peggy, Jonathan Michelorina, Carrie Bouchard, Rascal Math, Illuminati Jones, Jed Lackritz, Jess, Oni, Crystal Rothwell, Victoria Love, Monday Meats, Kiss My Honeyed Lemons, Despot Doll, Rory, Esme Prowse, and Maya Fernandez for helping us keep the lights, well, off. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed by Alain Citron, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. And until next time, thank you for listening.